could have the best harm reduction program in the world. You could have it be pair run. You could have it have plenty of resources. You could have it even have political support. But if the underlying structures of the society keep people homeless, keep people needing basic resources like food and safety, you're going to have a hard time improving their health. You know, really, that's the, the through line. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Before we get to this episode, I just wanted to take a moment and memorialize the life of harm reduction activist Aubrey Esters. She was the co-founder of CIF-MA Now, advocating for supervised consumption sites in her state of Massachusetts. She founded Boston's first drug users union and was a member of the state's Harm Reduction Commission. She fought for sex worker rights and trans rights. She pushed public officials and politicians in her community to think different about people who use drugs. She was reportedly found dead in her apartment on Thursday, June 11th. She was 35 years old. As of June 23rd, at the time of this recording, her cause of death is still pending. But since her death, the harm reduction community has been mourning her loss, and we at Narcotica feel that it's important to recognize and memorialize her life. It's people like Aubrey who make our world a better place, often at tremendous personal risks to themselves. Coming out as a person who used drugs, as trans, and organizing and fighting for the dignity and respect every human deserves. Not everyone is able to be visible and publicly voice what she did and fight for those who can't fight for themselves. So please take some time and think about her life and her work and what you can do to carry it on. We'll have a link to her GoFundMe in the show notes and a link to CIF-MA now. We hope everyone listening out there is staying safe and staying healthy. This is Zach Siegel, and you're listening to Narcotica. There are several health crises occurring around the U.S. and the world right now. Overdose deaths, a pandemic, police brutality, and violence. While these crises may feel all distinct from one another, they are actually deeply intertwined and can be understood through a lens of racial justice. Overdose deaths in the U.S. disparately impact people of color, as does the coronavirus. People of color, especially black men, find themselves on the blunt end of police brutality and excessive use of force. To talk about the theme of racial justice across public health and policing, we're honored to speak with veteran harm reduction researcher Ricky Bluthenthal, who has been a harm reduction researcher for decades, writing some of the foundational evaluations of syringe exchange programs. 
Right now, he's the Dean for Social Justice at the University of Southern California's Keck School of Medicine, and he's a fellow Trojan. I went to USC too. Ricky, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. All right, and with me is my trusty co-host, Troy Farah. Troy, what's up? Hey, how's it going? So I've wanted to have Ricky on the show for a long time, so I think we're just going to just jump right into this. And, you know, so there's an, there's an overdose crisis happening across this country, and many regions are either close to or, or are on the brink of hepatitis C and HIV outbreaks. On top of that, there's a global pandemic, and the U.S. response has been utterly abysmal. And further on top of that, there's a nationwide insurrection against the carceral state. And that's manifested in weeks of protests in all 50 states, applying pressure on public officials to, you know, cut budgets or reduce the the size of the police footprint. And, you know, posing the the abolition of our of our bloated system of racist policing. So let's see, did I did I miss anything? You know, there's there's climate change too, but maybe that's outside the scope of, of our talk. So so Ricky, your your work in in your thinking is sort of right at the intersection of of all these events and, and bears on this particular moment in history. And I think, you know, I just want to start by asking like, how are you doing and what does this moment feel like for you? I feel mostly like there is a great opportunity in the moment that I welcome. And, you know, I've been witness to, you know, three or four quote unquote drug epidemics, depending on how you want to count them. So crack cocaine, uh, opiate, math actually, methamphetamines, and then the opiates. And now it looks like we're going back to, to meth. You know, I've, been witness to, depending again how you count, four or five different infectious disease epidemics related to people who inject drugs. And, you know, so that includes HIV, hepatitis C, overdose, hepatitis C again. Infective endocarditis is now really growing dramatically in the country, as is um, abscesses. Um, and for the first time, I think we're seeing real conversations about the futility. So there was always opposition, but now futility to uh, a sort of law enforcement approach to substance use disorder um, and a recognition that, you know, for all these years, putting people in jail, removing them from social support systems, denying them educational opportunities and training, was only making their circumstances worse. And, you know, the criminal justice reform folks who I feel like really stepped in and infused harm reduction with a, an even larger set of uh, targets uh, have really done us all service. And, you know, now in this moment when there's a brief glimpse of recognition among white people about institutionalized racism, and how it's never really been about a few bad cops or a few bad teachers or, you know, whatever you want to call them. But it always has been about our institutions and their orientation towards people of color. And that that has to change. It's, it's a tremendous opportunity. And, and, uh, and I think 
in all of my thinking about it, I've tried to focus on, you know, how do we, how do we change the institutions so that they're healing people, not facilitating their destruction? Yeah. So let's talk about that. Like, what does that look like going forward? I mean, uh, I think this moment right now is so many things is bringing so much pressure points. And I feel like that's encouraging a lot of creative thinking. And I want to know what kind of solutions or, or strategies, what, what kind of society do we want to live in? Yeah. Well, I know what kind of society I want to live in. I mean, I think we're always going to be, um, it's always going to be a contest. I mean, I, I, I was, uh, so, be, you know, because I'm associate dean for social justice in my medical school at USC, you know, the, the, I've been very busy the last couple of weeks and I've been doing a lot of reflecting and reading. And, you know, one thing that we, you know, there's a theme in U.S. governance that's related to an unfortunate political reality, which is that for stigmatized groups, the balance of the American political center doesn't want to spend a cent on them, on any stigmatized group. So it could be African-Americans, it could be Mexican-Americans, uh, it can be people who are engaged in sex work or people who use drugs that we, that we don't like. And, and that, that rationale has sort of stood its own ground even though there's no evidence that it actually achieves anything other than social exclusion, right? So like the, the, there's no, there actually isn't a claim that uh, by keeping schools segregated or by making treatment hard to get, that you're actually solving any problems other than the group that's in power gets to only interact with people that they want to interact with. So I think some of the, the the thinking about that is now, you know, really being challenged directly. And I mean, it's not comprehensive. So I was, I think I was looking at your tweet earlier this week and you had tweeted something about like no cash bails and moving sort of away from these uh, low poverty taxes. Is that, is that true? Is that what you were, uh, you tweeted about Zachary? Um. I do a lot of tweets. I'm trying to... <laughs> like people were pushing back. Yeah. So I looked at your thing and like there was a bell bondsman who responded to me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It right. was like, oh, we do a great service. And it's like, yeah, no, you don't. You know, you're part of a predatory system, just like the prison system, you know, just like law enforcement can be. It doesn't have to be, but can be where we're, you know, we're over incarcerating low income people charging them for the the pleasure of that experience without ever being accountable for the fact that you, you know, perhaps not at 100% of the time, but like 95% of the time, you're actually undermining people's capacity to both take care of themselves, take care of their families and be productive members of the society. Uh, it's almost like the meanness is the, you know, the meanness isn't, isn't a bug, it's a feature. So I think, you know, getting rid of cash bail really stop arresting people for using drugs, stop arresting people even for selling drugs, you know, looking at options like safe supply, like, you know, basically saying, look, we, you know, you have these populations out there who in my, in, the, in my studies have increasingly become poor and homeless, right? Because institutional support has been withdrawn from them. 
And, you know, with obvious consequences, like you, you can't beat people up and expect them to get better. It, it, it just doesn't work. And so I, I feel like those logics have, are beginning to collapse on themselves. And there is more beginning to be more interest in, look, if we lean into these problems, begin to provide people with services, it, the truth is that the, in the long run, they're going to end up being better off and we're going to end up being better off. And we're also going to end up spending a lot less money on these problems. So I feel like it's a, it's a triple win. It's just the, you know, changing the political logics is, is what's challenging. Yeah. I, I, I agree with your point that, that like this does really present a unique opportunity. And I, and I think what the protests have, have really done quite effectively is always open up the space in our own, like, personally minds, but, like, I think collectively in the discourse to, to, yeah, think about, like, yeah, what kind of society do we want to live in? And the one you're describing, you know, that's achievable. Like, other places do have that world. And I'm thinking of, like, most of Western Europe, where... Since like 1900, I, so I've been re- like rereading Alex Vitale's um, The End of Policing and just like seeing that like in over a hundred years, like the, the, the British policemen, like the, the patrols and they've killed maybe like 50 people total in like a hundred years because they just like don't have guns for the most part, but like like disputes, like community disputes, like they're not there to crack skulls. They don't do warrior training. The society we live in, I think is just, and and I think this is what the, the moment has reflected back to us is just like some just brutality and, and cruelty running through it. And I think that's like a disease we can, we can root out like materially, it can be changed. Yeah, I mean, it's going to take a lot of work. I mean, you know, when we, so speaking about this on the social justice side and talk, and, and thinking about it in terms of racial justice, you know, I mean, I think part of the, and what I like about this moment is that I think white folks are, some are beginning to recognize that, you know, these institutions are run by somebody, right? <laughs> and, you know, and they reflect someone's belief system, it, you know, and 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 people need to change their belief system, you know. And I think that that's, you know, that will be the challenge. It, it sort of goes back to Gunder Myrdal's that American dilemma, you know. And it's a it's an enormous book. I, there's two volumes. I have them in front of me. I won't look up the number of pages, but each of them looks to be about seven hundred pages, maybe eight hundred pages, you know. And the take home from that analysis uh, on the racial justice problem is that you know, the problem of racism is a moral problem for white people. And, you know, they're active participants in it in myriad in myriad ways, but they don't have to be. Uh, and it includes, um, you know, silly stuff like, you know, uh, you drive around town and every time you see the, a, few, a few too many brown people or black people, you think in your head, oh, I'm in a bad neighborhood, right? Or, you know, the dozens of times in my professional life when I've been mistaken for a janitor or thought of as a student rather than a professor. 
you know, in it that 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 worldview, you know, means that every time they see a brown or a black person, it's a less than. The same thing happens, obviously, with substance users, and those are choices, right? Those are cultural choices. I mean, the the thing I was reading about, you know, it's uh, Juneteenth tomorrow, and so there's a celebration happening around that, and and so I was just reading the Wikipedia version, so who knows if it's accurate, but. You know, even, uh, so Juneteenth is when, um, and I forgot the name, but a union general got to Texas in June, so six months after the 13th Amendment, to bring the news that, uh, yeah, you can't keep people enslaved. Uh, and so then the year later, that date became a, 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 big, um, a big holiday for African Americans. And in particular in Houston, even after slavery ended, uh, Black folks were denied access to all public parks. So to have the celebration, they had to buy a 10-acre plot to even have the space, right, <laughs> to, to celebrate. And so, you know, those same kind of logics that happen with Black folks are applied to other stigmatized groups. And, you know, you see it, you know, in, in, um, in Travis, what's his last name? The, the guy in Vancouver. Uh, Lupic, Travis Lupic. Yeah, and, you know, the sort of fighting for space thing. And it, it's real, you know, that that, that there's a... You know, we don't want to make any space for the undesirables, you know, and we, we've got to, you know, we've got to take that sort of negative worldview head on and, you know, fight on behalf of the human dignity of everybody. And like I said, I mean, I think if we do, at the end of the day, what we'll discover is that they're better off and we're better off, you know, and so hopefully this moment will help facilitate that. I know at the medical school, you know, we're planning all kinds of things to try and diversify the faculty and continue diversifying in the student body and doing trainings on, you know, microaggressions and anti-racism education. And, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm 55. I've lived in LA most of that time. So I think with the exception of 12 years, you know, this is the first time I've even heard of this kind of conversation uh, where folks are saying, yeah, we, you know, white folks are saying, yeah, we, we have a problem and we're interested in working on it. And hopefully we can make progress on that, both in that, on the racism front, also on, uh, you know, in the war on drugs. Yeah. And, and I think one, one, you know, quick, you know, point just to, to sharpen it is like the, the institution of, of police, like evolved and came about to, quash those undesirables that that you mentioned like it was to protect property from you know vandals and vagrants and they they were basically like like security guards for the rich if you want to think about it that way i mean if you yeah if you look at the history it's hard to construe it as anything but that you know the union busting the fugitive slave act the you know i mean um you know lottery loitering laws yeah so speaking of your recent promotion to associate dean of social justice at the Keck Medical School, um, so when that happened, the usual racist right wing hacks like expressed outrage online about it. Like, why would a medical school care about social justice? And, you know, I'm not even going to. Are you serious? I, I never saw that, Troy. <laughs> Someone objected to that appointment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we have a Breitbart article to quote for you about you. <laughs> oh, really? I never even saw that. <laughs> Well, I uh, hate to break this to you this way. I mean, I don't even want to, like, promote them too much uh, or even, like, quote them. But the white supremacist blog Breitbart, for instance, wrote, 
The Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California is seeking to train students to view healthcare as a, quote, social justice issue by developing curriculum that will more effectively ingrain socialist ideology into the minds of its graduate students. So I have two questions. Uh, number one, was your promotion a big win for socialism? And, you know, also, <laughs> like, yes, health is a social justice issue, right? I mean, I don't understand how that's not obvious to some people, but maybe you could help us unpack that, explain a little bit of your own philosophy of why medicine, healthcare, public health, and harm reduction are all these intersecting issues of justice. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, you, I, I don't think the social justice agenda uh, precludes socialism, but I don't think it requires it either. So we, we can be socially just uh, and have a variety of economic arrangements. Probably not the ones that we have right now, which are trending hard towards monopolistic capitalism. That's both bad for workers and consumers, but that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. In terms of the medical field, you know, the truth is everything we know about medicine suggests that where people live, how they live, who they interact with, what they eat, what their job is, contributes more to their overall medical history than anything else about them, right? So the National Academies of Medicine have done analysis, NIH have done analyses. And in those analyses, typically it looks something like 15 to 30% of your medical well-being is attributable to your underlying genetic makeup. And then another 10% is typically ascribed to the quality of care that you receive when you're interacting uh, with a physician or with the healthcare system. And then the rest is the rest of your life. So we've been operating under that for 20 years, right? So that's been well understood. And then when you get into the actual mechanics of treating the patient, um, you know, what we need to equip physicians with is an understanding of the social distance between them and their patients, a cultural humility to be curious about how other people live so that they can better understand what options they have for treatment other than, you know, here's the indicated medication for whatever might be wrong with you. And then also what are their other resources? So what are the other kinds of things that are around them that can be helpful to supporting whatever recovery or treatment that, that's indicated? So physicians that are aware of that, you know, can engage with their patients at that level are going to end up having better patient outcomes because they're going to come up with the kinds of solutions that make sense for, for families. So, and I'll just use a, a, a bit of an example. So a good friend of mine's mother who has since passed away was overweight and had really severe diabetes. And, and, and so what the working with their physician, what they, they figured out is, okay, we just really have to control her diet. And because my friend lived, you know, with her elderly parents, she was in a position to sort of, you know, do the thing where they lock the refrigerator and they just make the meals for people. And, you know, it didn't save her mom. Of course, her mom still passed away, but she didn't die from diabetes. Uh, and in fact, had, you know, experienced substantial improvements in her weight over time. So, you know, that's a, that's a simple effect. From a health system uh, perspective, that's a huge win, though. And it's a huge win because you've mobilized the person's support network. You know, you'd never know what that is in most cases in the way that we've designed healthcare uh, in the current system. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, 
you know, the social justice goal, which is to make sure people get the care that they need that's going to be most effective for them, um, requires us to sort of engage with social determinants of health, which means that then, then physicians need to be aware of that. And then they also need to be advocating for more structural solutions that will reduce the incidence of diabetes in this case, or will uh, enable people to better control it, depending on whatever the particular circumstances are. So, you know, I don't know, you know, we, as everyone knows, we have the most expensive healthcare uh, system in the world. We also don't have great outcomes uh, as a health, uh, at a population level. So, you know, much worse than our European uh, uh, comparative countries. Um, you know, and the reason why we don't is, is because we don't treat healthcare as the goal. You know, every, every physician that I've spoken with, you know, recognizes that at the end of the day, the, the chief goal of the American healthcare system is for someone to make money. Um, and, and it's not really to treat people. And we need to, we need to get back to the goal being, you know, we want positive patient outcomes and we need to spend our money in a way that's going to achieve that for us. And some of that means, you know, we're going to have to reach into communities and make sure people have access to fresh foods and, you know, places where they can exercise um, and not surrounded by freeways and so on and so forth um, to improve population health. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, like the, the, the core rot of, of a lot of the healthcare issues comes down to the the for-profit structure of, of, of our system in a lot of ways. But I also think, you know, like that in and, in and of itself is sort of like a pretty, like, I don't know, conservative or maybe neoliberal conception of, of you know, market solutions to problems. And, you know, so long as people are making money off of pharmaceuticals, they'll keep innovating, like, like all these sort of assumptions that, you know, are, are factored into the way we think about healthcare. I mean, I, I think the thing that really, like, maybe made someone at Breitbart, like, jump at the idea or start wringing their hands about a social justice approach to healthcare, I think it's, it's not even, like, even only on the right where this is prominent. I, I just think so many people, I think, reduce like whatever medical issue, like just down to like DNA and genetics and, and biology. And, and like you just, you know, clearly laid out, like, you know, that stuff only accounts for a little bit of our health outcomes. Like so much more of it is about the neighborhood we live in, where the grocery store is, where, where the green spaces are, where, yeah, where, where the park is, can you walk around or are you right next to, did they develop next to a freeway? And when you go outside, your air quality is shit and you have asthma or lead in the water. I mean, like, these are the things that determine our health. And, and I think this very much taps into the current sort of defund the police or some of the abolition movement where it's like, what, like, money talks and where are our priorities if we're going to keep pouring money into criminalizing and, and, and punishing people that money is not being spent on parks and community development and you know mobility and, and green space and I think like that's where like I, I hope 
this conversation, like not just our conversation here, but broadly the discourse gets to that point to, to see that, that like, you know, we can divest money from ineffective and punitive elements in our society and move it to something positive that that not only makes people's just like basic life better, but will make them live longer and be happier. And like, I just wish our, our politics and our debates actually ask the question of like, what will make society better? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of the challenge is the, the, and it's hard. I mean, you know, if my analysis earlier about the nature of our actual mainstream culture is accurate, you know, I think the sad truth is, you know, we, we culturally, we probably, or our political culture probably is center right. Uh, and it is uh, not generous towards the people below you. Uh, and there, you know, there's a lot of pretty good sociological research on this sort of using the group position framework to sort of understand how important it can be to some populations to know that someone else is worse off than them or that by comparison, they're more valorous or, or better people than others. Instead of the, the, you know, the opposite of the inclination, which is, you know, in the shorthand being there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? Which is an understanding that, look, if you grow up, regardless of race, you know, a poor kid in a poor neighborhood with access to poor schools, you're not going to do as well in life uh, it, uh, as compared to someone who, you know, went to private schools and got to travel the world and had educated parents. And these are all, there's nothing surprising about any of this stuff. It's all, it's all well known, but it isn't reckoned with at a political level, you know, and somehow, you know, we've gotten it so twisted that like, you know, there can be bipartisan support for a completely unnecessary corporate tax cut but almost, you know, only partisan support if you wanted to increase food stamps or if you wanted to put more money into low-income school, you know, schools in low-income neighborhoods. That's somehow some moral affront. But giving more money to rich people isn't. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, as long as we have a two-party system, I, you know, the Democrats are going to, you know, have to do a better job of selling the the political claim that we're better off helping everyone than we are just helping the very, very rich, which is a bit, you know, essentially the one thing the Republicans are really consistently good at. Like they're really good at making sure people with lots of money get the, get their policy preferences realized. Um, And, you know, Trump is obviously that on steroids, but you know, the same thing happened with both Bushes and the same thing happened with Reagan. Like they've moved from a party that had, you know, maybe some principles and in a worldview that was somewhat coherent, at least in my mind, to one that, you know, when you look at what where they spend their political capital, it most it's it's either two, one of two places. One, it's to, you know, red meat for whatever they believe their population base to be. It's just culture war, like pure culture war. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they, you know, they, they do very little policy in that area, right? I mean, you know, in some ways, Trump was the first one to really you know, in terms of the immigration stuff, like he means that he's trying to actually give the, his party base that one thing, which is something, for instance, that George Bush Jr. didn't do. 
Uh, and then, but the other thing, the through line from all four of those presidents is, you know, tax cuts for rich people. Like that's, that's the main, uh, and, and, you know, not even for people who are well off. I mean, really rich people, right? So, you know, folks who are looking at millions of dollars of income or only have income from investments, you know, their, their governing logic is, is really become pretty narrow, I think. Uh, and it, you know, to the detriment of the society. I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier about how some of these connections between public health and racism are not surprising, that if you kind of look at how these institutions were formed and how they are structured, like they're operating in a way that, you know, we say like the system is broken. That's not actually accurate, in my opinion. Uh, it's it's functioning as it should. But let's talk about how, you know, there's all this data and information on there, out there about this. But uh, there are some challenges about communicating these results to the public. And I, I just want to use syringe access uh, as a kind of an example. West Virginia's largest syringe exchange recently closed. Um, all over the country, mayors and police chiefs and the public have run these kinds of places out of town. Um, and not long ago, the CDC put out this grant for a syringe exchange communication toolkit to basically try and rally a community support for this harm reduction intervention. You've been studying syringe access for a while now. How do you talk about these findings and evaluations with a community who may hate drug use and just want everyone to stop injecting and see syringe exchange as like a, quote, enabling practice? Well, I mean, I, I, I've had the conversation many times. Uh, I, let me just confess that it never works on someone who is adamantly opposed to these programs. So just, in fact, I had an interesting experience probably a year ago or maybe 18 months ago. I was on a radio show uh, about them closing the syringe exchange program in Orange County. And the complaint was the syringe exchange wasn't picking up syringes, which of course was ridiculous because they were. But what was actually happening was they had intensified their policing of the homelessness encampments. And so they kept moving people around and disrupting stuff. And in the course of that, syringes would end up laying around. And so they blamed that on the syringe exchange program. Anyway, so, you know, the guy talked and, and, I, and my approach, at least on syringe disposal, was to think about, you know, the reason why garbage ends up on the ground most of the time is because there's no place to put it, regardless of the kind of garbage it is. That's just a, sort of a truism in humans. Like mo most of us are more than happy to put garbage in a garbage can if it's available. You know, you just need to make receptacles available for people and they'll put them, they'll dispose of them as, as intended. Nobody wants anyone to get hurt by stray syringes hanging around and, and, and stuff like that. Literally nobody, right? Like there's not, you know, I've spent a lot of time with people who inject drugs, spent a lot of time with homeless people who inject drugs. You know, I've been with them in various mental states and, and you know, people aren't proactively trying to harm each other. They, what mostly happens is they don't have the tools to, to be as safe as they could be. Or in these cases, in the case of what was going on in Orange County, I mean, the, the, the other forces of the government are actively making the problem worse by disrupting these encampments and not giving people things that they need. So, you know, I can be perfectly reasonable about it. And so what was funny about this uh, talk was, the person who was a was opposing the exchange went to USC, and so uh, and I remained very calm and reasonable. And so at one point, at, towards the end, I sort of laid out, "Well, this is how we really should deal with syringe disposal." And he actually kind of agreed with me, mostly because I was also from USC. But then he like went remembered who he was and went back to hating on it. <laughs> 
So, <laughs> you know, so I, I do think the goal then isn't to change the minds of people who are dead set against it. It's really to work on the 40% of the people in the middle who are, who are persuadable. And, you know, the research that, that I've conducted with my colleague Alex Kral at RTI, you know, we really tried to lay out the case for how if you have more generous syringe dispensing, you know, we have a paper on that. You can you actually can achieve better outcomes in terms of syringe sharing, which is an infectious disease risk piece of it. And you don't actually have any impact on syringe disposal, right? So, you know, it's not always great, but it's not any worse for people who have more syringes. And then, you know, there's been a lot of empirical studies looking at readiness for treatment. I've written one. There have been, other, there have been a couple of others written by other authors. You know, uh, and it just, having syringe exchange programs doesn't make people less interested in drug treatment. You know, Sam Friedman and others have done some interesting, and uh, Melissa Marks and the group with Valhub when he was at uh, Baltimore did some interesting stuff about attitudes among children. Um, and, you know, the truth is, and, and, and I've done a lot of this research, when you do interviews, life course interviews with, with people who do inject drugs, you know, the, the, no one says I inject drugs because there were syringes around, right? The, the, it's a more, you know, it's a mu- much more complicated experience than that, there, you know. Um, and, and so the mere fact of having the program uh, doesn't, doesn't create these sort of unintended consequences or potential negative consequences. So, you know, and I think my focus is then on that 40%. Uh, in fact, I like to say about my career, so I started just doing HIV FAE studies in 1991 as a graduate student. And, you know, probably the first 10 years, I was really focused on, hey, can we show that these things work? And the truth is, during that period, I probably should have just been focused on, do they cause other problems that everyone keeps talking about? Because at the end of the day, we're still in a, a, a moment where health improvement among a needy population in and of itself isn't perceived to be a community good. I think about that. Like, if I tell you, hey... I can implement this syringe dispensing policy and I'm going to see a five-fold declination in syringe sharing in this population. That persuades almost no one because at its heart, we don't care about people who are beneath us in our sort of broader political culture. That's, you know, it's not individual. It's like the, the, the logics of our politics are always to punch down and never to punch up. And so I, you know, I feel like that's the thing that we've got to change. Like, you know, we got to stop punching down. We got to recognize that people's lives and their life courses have been negatively shaped by their interactions with police and incarceration. And and those are choices. Like they're, you know, if my kids, you know, got into trouble, you know, I sure as heck would not see them be incarcerated as some kind of tough love solution. You know, that's not how I'm going to approach that problem. And guess what? No one else in my economic circumstances approaches those problems that way. But if you said, hey, for these low-income kids, this totally makes sense. You know, we just got to stop that kind of logic because it's bananas. Kids do well the more resources you give them, the more opportunities you give them, period, end of discussion. And so really the focus should be on, you know, if we want fewer people injecting drugs, if we want fewer people homeless, 
we've got to get them the resources so that they can take care of themselves because they're doing these things because they, it isn't easy for them to achieve that in the current system. Yeah, I feel like you could have gotten way more famous had you been studying moral hazards. You could have gotten the, the big flashy uh, magazine covers and be in Quillette or something. Don't but, get, uh, please don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, no, I... I won't. I won't. I think we've talked too much about how dumb that stuff is on this show over the past couple of years. And, and, and another, as you were talking about, you know, being like back in the 90s studying syringe exchange, we, you and me have one more connection. Um, like I, I currently work with Leo Boletsky all the time. And I think he, you were like one of his original like mentors or he worked under you maybe when you were back at Rand a while ago. You, I think you like just saw your syringe work and was like, I'm, I want to work with that guy. No, Leo's Leo's. I mean, what a, what a beast. And he's still like, he's everywhere. I don't, I don't know how he does it, but uh, yeah, I mean, I laid down a marker early on around the impact of law enforcement on syringe exchange programs and also on risk among uh, people who inject drugs. And, you know, we, again, we were making a relatively straightforward case about, look, if people are worried about getting arrested for syringes, they aren't going to carry syringes. We weren't the first people to say that, but we were like the second. And so, you know, I think that work has been foundational. And then, you know, in the 90s, when I was in graduate school, I actually ran a needle exchange program and I got arrested. I can't remember now. It was either three or five times. Oh, man, I didn't know that. That's wild. Yeah, so I was really well acquainted with the law enforcement impacts on on syringe exchange programs. And so I wrote about that when other people were kind of avoiding that topic. Uh, and then I feel like Leo really picked up on that piece of it. And so, you know, has, it's blossomed into a, you know, a fully mature, well thought out research agenda, around, you know, relative to the relationship between law enforcement and public health. So... You know, yeah. I'm happy to claim a small little inspirational role in his fantastic career. Yeah, I've, at the so like at the Health Injustice Action Lab, like where I do some work with him, I think like the the, the tagline like on Twitter and the bio is literally like studying like the public health impact of like law enforcement is essentially what we're doing. And yeah, I mean it's it's important stuff and. And I, and I think this is a, a good segue into, you know, something you mentioned, you know, offline before the show and, and also earlier in the show, just talking about all the different sort of epidemics and outbreaks and, and upheavals you've been witness to over the years. And, and that lately, you know, you've been thinking about the, the parallels and, and the differences between the, the past struggle to, to prevent, you know, the spread of HIV among people who use drugs, you know, back in the 80s and, and, and 90s. And this, this present day struggle, you know, against policing and, and even the, the coronavirus pandemic. And, and I was wondering if you could sort of like thread that, that needle for us, like, like what strikes you as a continuation of that struggle with, you know, like now with the coronavirus pandemic and, and HIV and, and what is maybe different? Yeah, let me start with the. I, I, I'll, I'll start with what I think is different, and and uh, and the difference may just be in who I am, and so I will just share. So I, I I have thought about my own career 
as basically a disease fighter. Uh, and, you know, certainly in the 90s and 2000s and even into the 2010s, that's more or less what I was doing. And I think what I realize now is really what I should be is just uplifting the lives of people who inject drugs and who are homeless and everyone else whose basic human dignity is assaulted by the system. So I think that's the difference for me. And I hope, I think we're moving towards understanding that, that, that that's a difference that all of us understand now. So you could have the best harm reduction program in the world. You could have it be peer run. You could have it have plenty of resources. You could have it even have political support. But if the underlying st structures of the society keep people homeless, keep people needing basic resources like food and safety, you're going to have a hard time improving their health. And, you know, really that's the, the through line. You know, and then of course the comparison is, you know, when the, and this is why I started with the opportunity. I mean, when these bad things happen, um, they do change the way people think and they do change the way people act. They're, they're their own kind of political, what, you know, there's this notion in epidemiology about an epidemiologic transition. They're kind of a political transition. And, and so there's, a, there's an opportunity to build bridges and new coalitions and change the political conversation so that we can begin to put our resources and, you know, in things that work, in uh, things that make more sense. I mean, you know, I have this, these conversations because I do interact with police officers on occasion. I do interact with uh, firefighters. Um, and it's interesting, like when you talk to those folks, what you realize is that they're misnamed. So, you know, a lot of the time, like in a, a big place like Los Angeles, you know, our firefighters, they put out fires, but mostly they're emergency medical response, right? That's most of their activity is emergency medical response. So why don't we call them that? Right? Why don't we have, you know? And I think with the police, there's a lot, and 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 we see this a lot in this the sort of connection between housed people and unhoused people, and then how the police end up in between them. You know, in LA, we've created a pretty efficient system where people like me, not me personally, but people like me who own a home and are in a, a quote unquote nice neighborhood right, will be incentivized or have barriers lowered for me to complain to my city council person or directly to the police about a homeless encampment. And that happens thousands of times a day in, the, in Los Angeles. And so then what, so you get those calls going into the, the city council office, or you get those calls going directly to the police. And so then the police respond. Now they don't have a solution for homelessness. They're not social workers. They're not drug treatment providers. They're not mental health uh, experts. And so, you know, they do what they're trained to do, which is to arrest people or to make people move along, often at the threat of violence. And, you know, we're, we have pretty well-developed theory and empirical data that suggests uh, at this point, like if I'm moving you around and confiscating your stuff, I'm literally reducing your capacity to take care of yourself. 
So I think the part of the idea would be to say, oh, it's not that we don't need any police, we, but we do need a lot fewer of them. And they probably need to be focused on a narrow range of, of sort of property and personal crime um, that all of us are sort of opposed to and less involved in the sort of quote unquote beautification work. Right, which is, hey, I don't like having these people live near me unhoused, so I want you to use your authority to move them somewhere else. So, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of work to do among people who are housed where we begin to recognize that we are actually part of the problem. In fact, you know, I like to make the point in, in some ways. I haven't benefited directly from homelessness, but you know the the problem of homelessness in the United States or in the Los Angeles, you know, is driven by increased property values, and I own a home, so you know I'm I'm in that right. I, I I'm part of what's what's causing the problem, and I need to act like I know that and begin behaving in ways that recognize that I don't want to really be part of a system that's driving people into the streets, right? I want to be part of a system that's figuring out ways, and they'll have to be structural, you know, to build housing so that people of low or no income have a reasonable place to stay and where they can uh, begin to realize their human potential and have their human dignity respected which is the opposite of the circumstance that we're in now. And that's the, the socialist ideology they teach at the <laughs> Keck School of Medicine. <laughs> wow. Um, so I think this is a good place to wrap up. Uh, we covered so much ground here. There's uh, a lot of different intersecting problems, but it's, you know, I think it's important to remind people that we can imagine a better world and we're working towards that. And even though things may seem chaotic now, I think that something... Uh, something very orderly will emerge from it. Um, is there anything else you wanted to mention on the program, Ricky? Yeah, I mean, I do. I do just want to say, you know, thanks for this program. I, I've, been, I've become a, a real fan of the podcast, so I, I appreciate what you guys have done. Uh, and there, are, you know, there's uh, so many good podcasts out there now. The, the only thing I want to say is, I just want us all to remember that we're all, you know, we're all in this together, and, and you know, we have to decide whether we want to be part of the solution or continue to be part of the problem. So I think that's the key. It's like, it's, we're not separate. We're not distinct. You know, we're connected. And unfortunately, sometimes the things that are beneficial are really harmful to other people. And I want to work to make that not be the case. And I, and I hope that other people who find themselves in privileged positions, whether they're at medical schools or other sectors of life, begin behaving that way rather than, operating on this notion that, well, if this benefits me, it must be a moral good that we should all be in favor of. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Bluthenthal. I just want to mention, so if people want to find you on Twitter, they can find you at Dr. PTW. That's D-R-P-T-W. Um, and thank you so much again. Yes. Follow Ricky and be on the lookout for any absurd Breitbart follow-ups to your 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 socialist appointment <laughs> i'm so glad that i'm so glad that you had no idea that that happened because i i was worried by bringing it up we would be like 
unpacking this like racist troll pile on that happened to you. But I'm I'm glad that it's not the case. <laughs> Oh, can I can I, can we can I give you one more story real quick? So, and this will relate to the racist pylon. Uh, so I would have been fine if I had known about this, but only because of this earlier experience. So uh, in two thousand three or four, I began working with this other scholar, Deidre Brown Taylor, who's an African American psychologist, a clinical psychologist, who was interested in the impacts of malt liquor beer on low income black men, and one of the holes in alcohol science, particularly back then, uh, was that there was poor differentiation between the different types of products. So malt liquor beer was sort of counted the same as all the other beers. But, you know, because of the bottles sizes that it was sold in um, and higher alcohol content, it was, you know, basically it was like twice as potent. And so we did this study in South Los Angeles and uh, we had a publication which basically just confirmed what Dr. Brown Taylor had thought, which was that our lo- low-priced, higher alcohol content beers were leading to people, you know, drinking a ton, and it was really bad for them. Right? No surprise there. So we published it, and and then I spent like a week feeling sorry for myself because the sort of right-wing trolls picked it up. The 2005 version of them. Um, and just like, oh, what an idiot. Who, who would publish a study like this? And the only thing that was like flat, slightly, uh, because, you know, of course, folks drinking know all of these things. It's the same thing like with the drug use stuff. They, they know what's going on. It's just us guys with PhDs that know. So you could have something that was like a big deal in the alcohol research world, which is like common knowledge to folks who drink. So the, the only thing that was funny about it is, so there's a couple of threads where they sort of go off and there's all the inward stuff. And of course, this explains why black people are so awful. And then it would devolve into their own experience with malt liquor beer and their appreciation. <laughs> of it. So that was, just, <laughs> so it was sort of like an interesting exercise. And, but, you know, but, you know, it is, it really does hit the spot. And, you know, I've been really messed up on that many, many, you know what I mean? Oh my God. It, yeah. That, that, that's like when like, like, you know, like a Starbucks employee, like allegedly writes like pig on a cup of coffee that they serve to a cop and by, which is like totally fake. And then by protesting all the right wing people go buy Starbucks cups and like write their own shit on it. It's like, you're just giving more business to the fucking thing you allegedly hate. Anyway, that, that's actually, that's a good place to wrap up. I mean, (laughs) your research, yeah, just seems to 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 rub white people the wrong way sometimes <laughs> why is that <laughs> I, i've actually never thought about it that way i'm gonna have to my re i can put that as a tag under my name my research yeah. can, tends to rub white people the wrong way. <laughs> okay well thank you for your time yeah thank you so much take care have a have a great pandemic <laughs> trying to enjoy stays isolated. Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast. We're also on other social medias like Facebook and YouTube. Narcotica is an independent production by Chris Vermarath, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Poddington Bear. And I'm your co-producer, Garrett. If you're a fan of our show and like what we do here, consider supporting us on Patreon. 
there's a lot of really good places to take your money right now, like the ACLU, NAACP, Doctors Without Borders. And so that's why we really appreciate the people who choose to support us on Patreon. Thank you for helping keep this show free from corporate influence. Give us a follow where you get your podcast. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. And be sure to have a very nice night. <laughs>